Welcome to this episode of the Advanced Southwest Iowa LaunchCast. I'm Todd Studer, joined today by Nikki Ferguson, Manager of Entrepreneurial Development at Advanced Southwest Iowa Corporation. And also, we are going to visit today with a special guest in studio, Hugh Finnerty. He is has a company called HLF3 Global Supply Chain, and that's a mouthful, and I'm excited to learn more about this company and about Hugh and everything that's going on. Nikki, let's start with you. Anything new and exciting happening right now at Advanced Southwest Iowa Corporation? Same as every week. Keep busy, busy, busy. <laughs> Great things happening. Again, the Rev, we've talked about it for weeks. You're down to less than 48 hours by the time this airs that you can still apply. You have till midnight on Friday, so apply for Rev. And we want to encourage anyone that has a small business to do that because, and we've talked about this before, that even if you do not get selected to present uh, and pitch for the funding, you're going to make some great connections. And it's a wonderful opportunity to network and it costs nothing. Nothing to apply. Absolutely. Again, those connections, I've said before, some of the people that didn't pitch or didn't win have actually walked away with more lucrative connections than the ones that did. So it's well worth it. And again, whether you're Main Street or you have something super cool like Hugh does over here, it's worth applying. How did this connection uh, between uh, Advanced Southwest Iowa Corporation and Hugh get together? I mean, why were you excited to bring him into the studio? Well, actually, Hugh has been around for a while. We've, we've known of some of the things that Hugh has going on. If you're familiar with the Startup Collaborative that was part of the Omaha Chamber. It's changed a little bit in the last year or two, but he was a fellow there and going through their program. So just being a part of the Omaha Chamber, you know, and the staff and the partnership there heard heard about you, you know, knew what was going on. And then he reached out to me recently, you know, with a small problem during his growth, and we were able to find a solution there. And I thought, you know, this is kind of cool. And, you know, let's change it up a little bit. We've been very, you know, small business focused lately on the on the podcast. So I was like, let's go back, let's change it up and let's go global. So and he was interested as willing to sit down and, and chat with us today. Let's find out exactly what HLF3 Global Supply Chain is. Hugh, thank you very much for your time coming into the studio. Uh, tell us about your company. What do you have? Absolutely, Todd. Thanks for having me here. And Nikki, thank you so much for inviting me and, and helping me with my, uh, my little problem that needed a solution. And I think you came up with the solution and we implemented it within three or four days. I was very impressed. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my company, my, my service, uh, I've been in the international shipping business for 35 years. And um, most people really had no concept about what I did until COVID hit and all of those ships started backing up in Los Angeles and on the nightly news, they had the helicopters flying over showing, you know, a hundred ships at anchor waiting to be unloaded at the port of Los Angeles. And then they started hearing about uh, supply chain, supply chains broken and started putting two and two together. And they said, oh, now we know what you do. You ship those containers, don't you? It's like, yes, I do. And then those who didn't know about it uh, from Los Angeles realized what happened when the ship ever given ended up at a 45-degree angle in the Suez Canal, and that shut everything down. So by now, after COVID, everyone knows what I do. 
So uh, being in this business for 35 years, um, I recognize what some of the problems of importers are. And um, a lot of the, the, the small to mid-sized importers um, really had a big problem. And that was uh, rates, their ocean freight rates, would gyrate. There's a lot of, you know, what we call variability in the ocean rates uh, throughout the shipping season. So the shipping season generally starts around April or so. And, you know, they start bringing in cargo, other goods, furniture, e-commerce goods, you know, the chairs we're sitting on, the, the table uh, that's right here, um, you know, throughout the year. And as uh, they start getting their inventories built up for uh, Black Friday, um, right around Thanksgiving, uh, rates uh, slowly, generally, start rising from April, May into October and November. And the importers had no idea how high those rates were going to go. So, you know, as you can imagine, how do you price your goods? How do you feel comfortable buying a certain quantity of goods if you don't know what your cost is going to be? Now, the big guys, you know, the Walmarts, the Targets, etc., I mean, they're bringing in two, three, four hundred thousand containers. So they have a way of, uh, when they negotiate with the carriers, they can fix the rates. So the rate that they have in April or May is going to be the same rate they have in, you know, September, October, and throughout the year. It's having fixed rates, but the small guys do not have that negotiating power. They are subject to the, the, the winds of the market. So normally, you know, prior to COVID, you know, it, say to the West Coast, it might cost, you know, twelve to $1,500 for a container from, let's say, Shanghai to LA. Um, but then as you get into September and October, Christmas goods are coming over, ships are, you know, filling up, etc. It might go up 1000 or 2000 or $3,000. Um, so that really causes a problem in terms of, like I said, predicting prices. You know, you've got to think these companies have to put prices on their catalogs months in advance. So I thought, boy, if I could solve that for the small to mid-sized people, I've really got something, uh, a new mousetrap for them. And so I did. I went about and I solved it. And this was back in about 2016. So, you know, I had a good three years uh, before, you know, COVID hit that I was testing uh, the model throughout different market conditions. And uh, as Nikki was mentioning, I was working with the Startup Collaborative. And the, the whole idea was to to make the uh, a transition into bringing the model independent um, and uh, prior to COVID, but COVID hit. And um, so I didn't want to make any real changes at that point. It was a brand new market environment. And so, so you know, let's think about that. COVID hits and all of a sudden nothing is shipping for two or three months from China. 
because everyone was on lockdown. Then as we got into April, May, June, um, everyone had some extra money in their pockets and they realized they can buy goods online. All of a sudden, demand spiked. Demand spiked beyond anything predicted. At the same time, uh, we didn't have capacity. Uh, we didn't have capacity because the ships were in the wrong location. The containers, the empty containers, were in the long, wrong location. It created a mess, an absolute mess. And rates that had one point been $1,500 into the West Coast for a 40-foot container. That's, you know, he's here in the Midwest. We see these containers coming across other railroads, right? Stacked double high. A lot of those are 40-foot high-cube containers where most cargo comes in. So the rate on that went from $1,500 a container to as high as $25,000 a container to the West Coast. To the Midwest, it jumped from approximately $3,200 to, in some cases, $35,000 and more. It was a mess, an absolute mess. My customers still paid our original contract rates, and we were able to bring cargo still into the West Coast at those $1,500 rates. Um, then the next year, the new contracts came out, and we were still only at 3200 I think, into the West Coast. And, um, uh, but one of the, one of the challenges we had was, uh, there were some delays on getting, uh, cargo on ships under some of the lower price contracts. As you can imagine, the carriers wanted the really high price stuff. So, you know, most of my customers could wait and, uh, we shoved a lot of cargo onto these ships at those low rates, but, we needed to add to the model. We needed a good market rate model that provided capacity at whatever rate was available out there in the market. Because even at the market rate models, these carriers were moving cargo at twenty-five dollars to $35,000. It was still hard to find space. So because of the flexibility of my model, I was able to go out there and expand capacity to unlimited amounts. I had a customer that we were importing before COVID about 1,400 containers um, by the end of 2021, and that's 1,400 containers a year. So the end of 2021, we imported for them about 12,000 containers. That was unheard of. It was because of the flexibility of the model. So the model was able to moderate costs. I, I think we shipped about half of their cargo at the original low contracted fixed rates. The other half, they had to get here because it was seasonal. They, customers wanted it. Customers were willing to pay for it. They could absorb uh, into the increased prices of the goods uh, that those high ocean freight rates. So my model solved a big problem for the small to mid-sized guys. And... Um, and so now uh, you've kind of caught me in transition a little bit. I've, I'm bringing the model independent. So uh, on uh, July 1 is when we started to do this independently. 
and uh, we're in the, the normal, uh, you know, growth pains and administrative adjustments, etc. And that's where uh, I was really able to rely on Nikki to solve one of my problems. And I know as we grow, uh, Nikki and her group and the chamber, we've got a great ecosystem here in Council Bluffs, is really going to be able to help me and my company as we grow with employment, um, with the technology that we'll be bringing on, and I'm just really looking forward to it. I have a couple of different avenues that I I would want to go down with you about this. One being that obviously when COVID hit, that changed everything for everybody, but also no one knew the length of time that was going on. So is this a temporary fix? Is it a permanent fix? Do we have to come up with just something to get us by for a couple of months? Because even the the news and the feedback we're getting, there's no answers there either. So how long did it take before, or maybe you never did start to feel comfortable with the changes that you had to make to cope with that? Um, you know, like you said, no one knew what, what was going to happen. It was a, an imbalance of demand and supply, uh, demand and capacity in this case, right? Capacity, shipping capacity. And, um, one of the, uh, one of the problems with the shipping capacity was flow that if you have ships on schedule, lined up one after the other, flowing beautifully, you're, you're going to have great capacity. You're, you're, you're not going to have problems. Well, what happens, we had all those ships sitting at anchor. And so even though we had more, quote-unquote, capacity, uh, static capacity in the market, because all those ships were sitting, we actually had 25% less usable effective capacity. So now we're getting on the other side. They, they, they call this the, the bullwhip effect. It's one of the, the, the first things you learn when you take any type of supply chain education, the bullwhip effect. And it's, it's where all of a sudden demand goes up. And when demand goes up, you know, everyone's behind the curve. They issue their purchase orders and capacity takes time to catch up and that's you know when you snap a whip right and it's it's like a sine wave right and so initially it's a real high sine wave um high frequency and then it slowly moves back into flow over time so this is a question is like when is this going to move back into flow over time <laughs> we we don't and this is a question you really just ask so we're really we're learning about the different constraints here in the United States in our supply chain, and I'm talking about physical constraints, asset constraints, constraints out on the West Coast with the ports, you know, auto, automation constraints. What's what's interesting is the primary constraint that's beginning to continue, and what was one of the root cause uh, causes of this is chassis. And chassis are the wheels. So when these containers come over on the ship, they don't have wheels. When they come off the ship, you got to drop them on a chassis with wheels so that they can drive them, you know, to the warehouse or drive them to 
where they can be loaded again on a train, taken off the wheels and loaded on a train. So this is still the problem. Out on the West Coast, I was looking today, there's only a few ships at anchor. That's fine. But the problem is these ships are dropping these containers at the port. There's no chassis. So the port is then moving these containers and stacking these containers. So then even if you find a chassis, your container might be so buried in stacks of other containers, you might not be able to get it. So now we're having a land side uh, primary cause of this problem. And so here in Council Bluffs, we have a hub uh, at the Union Pacific, and about, I think this is about six weeks ago, we got notified that there, again, is a significant chassis shortage here. Um, I heard that they moved a number of the chassis down to Kansas City because Kansas City had had problems. So now we have no chassis. So they are pulling these containers off the trains. They're moving them to a, a separate yard, and they're stacking these chassis. Uh, in Kansas City, for example, I saw the container might come in and get stacked on, in a, uh, you know, put in a stack, and they might not be able to get it for 40 days, for 40 days. So what's happening is we're getting a, up to a six-week delay on the West Coast before the container can get moved over to the rail. Then when it gets into here, Kansas City, uh, Chicago, Memphis, these inland points, um, they might sit for another 20 to 40 days. I'm finding all of this fascinating because I have an issue going on in my facility that I've been waiting on some furniture that I ordered <laughs> back in June. And I was told when I ordered it that it would be in about the first week of August. The last report I got is we may be looking at the end of November. Oh, my God. Now, with what you're saying, this is something that never even occurred to me, that I assumed it had to do with, well, it's just not being manufactured, or maybe it's not leaving the manufacturing plant. What I'm hearing is there's probably a good possibility that it's sitting already in a big stack of containers somewhere and it's buried and I, it's, it's going to take a while. I think what we learned through COVID and maybe the, the smart people probably already knew this is our economy is not designed for a full stop. It is designed for constant movement. So when the full stop happened, we're going to be dealing with this for a while. Absolutely. When, when you study supply chain theory, any kind of business theory, um, and you look at you know, disruption and planning, how do you plan for this kind of risk? Well, the convention is to plan for uh, what's going to happen if you, ought, you immediately have a 20% increase in demand. What's going to happen to your organization, to your costs, to your profits, if you all of a sudden have a 20% decrease in demand? We ended up with 300% increases in demand. For, for three months, we had you know, an infinite decrease in demand. After that, we had three to 400% increase. No one plans for that. 
no one can afford to plan for that because that means now you're buying assets that will maybe only be used during a black swan event like what we had. So, you know, now there's there's some people out there trying to put together models for black swan events, right? But uh, this was a black swan event that, you know, the, you just can't plan for. It's just too expensive to have excess capacity for the few times you have the black swan event. So we just have to live with this. Um, we're learning a lot. I, I, I think it, this is good for our transportation and supply chain infrastructure. Um, a lot of companies are trying to reshore their manufacturing, which is almost impossible to reshore a significant amount. Um, China took over for our as our manufacturing base uh, in the 90s. Uh, Mexico was supposed to do it in the 80s, but they failed. And so uh, China took up the, that vacuum. Now, there is manufacturing capacity moving to Vietnam. It started moving to Vietnam back in the early 2000s. Um, but, you know, it's limited. Uh, there's capacity trying to move over to India. There's constraints in India as well. Um, there's more capacity moving down to Brazil. Uh, Brazil's a lot closer. Uh, there's constraints down there. So, and of course, there's more capacity moving back to, to Mexico and the United States. But, um, you know, we knew this back in the 70s and 80s when we were predicting the future of the supply chain. We knew that here in the United States, just using what's called the law of comparative economics, that here in the United States, we've got capital. So we want to produce high-value goods. We don't want to produce textiles. We don't want to... Um, you know, to, to put together Christmas trees and Christmas lights, low-value stuff. We want a low-cost uh, labor base to do that. And like I said, Mexico is supposed to be that. Um, but China took it over. Now China, of course, you know, they're growing. Their uh, GNP is growing. Uh, their um, uh, earnings uh, per person is growing. So costs are going up a bit. And um, so it's moving around to some of these other countries. But, I th I th but, but based upon the, the, the law of comparative uh, advantage, we will always be using um, a non-U.S.-based, low-cost labor force for low-value goods. And where is that going to be? You know, it, it will be in China for years and years to come. We want to learn a little bit about you you about uh, HLF and what you see is the future for your company. I mean, you're a local company, but you're doing business international. So where are things headed for you? Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm a third generation uh, Council Bluffs uh, native, and I, uh, <clears throat> I moved away to Chicago uh, after college to learn this business, this international business. And I spent uh, 13 years up there, and, you know, during that time, I spent a lot of time in Singapore and in Malaysia and in the U.K. and driving around the countryside of 
France, uh, visiting all these uh, manufacturers. It was really quite a lot of fun. And because of that, I, I met uh, people all over the world in my business. And, and we're, uh, we're, we're a unique business. There's just not many people in our industry. And who you know is very, very important. So when we sold the company in um, uh, 2000 in Chicago, it, it, it was time for uh, me to make a move. And I, I really wanted to come back here uh, with family back here. I wanted to be with them. And uh, so that was in 2000. And so for the past uh, 22 years, uh, I've been operating uh, my, you know, supply chain, my, my shipping activities from, from here, which it's easy to jump on a plane, you know, over in Omaha and fly anywhere in the world. And, uh, but I tell you, when, when I land, I think my blood pressure goes down and I'm just glad to be home. I'm glad to be home. And, and I know I've got a lot of support back here, you know, from the business community. And, and being from the Midwest, you know, when I go to New York or when I go out to the West Coast, you know, they, 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 they tell me there's just something about Midwesterners they feel comfortable about, maybe trust, you know, and of course they always, you know, ask me about Warren Buffett, and, <laughs> you know, so. I know everyone thinks that we all know him personally. And, and... <laughs> we all have a Warren story. Though, right. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hugh, I, I could sit and talk to you for hours. I really could. And uh, unfortunately, we just, we don't have the time, but I, I'm hopeful that you don't be a stranger. And I would love to learn more about everything that you do. And uh, as you, things get back to more normal for you, and we can learn more about that as well. So, but thank you for taking the time yeah, to come in you, and, and visit Appreciate with us. It. Hugh Finnerty, his company is HLF3 Global Supply Chain. And also joining us today, Nikki Ferguson, Manager of Entrepreneurial Development at Advanced Southwest Iowa Corporation. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again next Wednesday.